Welcome to Same Old Song, the lectionary podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. As always and ever, I'm Scott Jones, your co-host. In just a moment, I'll be joined by Jacob Smith, the rector at Calvary St. George's Episcopal Church in New York City. He and I will be your guide every Tuesday to a grace-infused, cosmopolitan look at the lectionary passages for the week. We'll do our best to help both pastors and churchgoers alike to connect the never-changing truth of God's grace as found in these texts with what feels like an ever-changing and sometimes confusing world, and we'll do that all in 25 minutes or less. Here we are at it again, my friend, the same old song. We're trucking along here well into Epiphany, the fifth Sunday of Epiphany, I believe, which we have renamed Eureka. That's right. We are so deep into the season of Epiphany that the uh, paisley stoles are now officially dirty, need to be cleaned, need to be pressed. But that doesn't stop us because we're wearing preaching tippets. Where are those stoles made? Uh, they're made by uh, CM Almy or Whipple, I'm not sure. So They're not, they're not made in China? No. <laughs> Because if they are, we're going to put a big tax on those stoles coming back in. Yeah, in Mexico. They're bought in Walmart. So, but, uh, you know, it's actually interesting that you bring that up, Scott, because, um, you know, what's happening uh, when you begin to read Facebook, which at one time was just for you to post cute pictures of your kids and keep up with your friends from high school, it has now become the ultimate political platform. But I digress. Uh, when you begin to take a look at what's going on in Facebook, especially a lot of preachers, they are so amped right now about Micah and Isaiah and the Old Testament readings because they think it's all about social justice and about getting ready to stand and what we are going to now do uh, to break the chains that oppress us? You mean it's not? Mm, mm, I don't know. You know, uh, I, I haven't broken, uh, I haven't set anyone free, and I haven't broken every yoke, and, uh, um, you know, uh, it can become problematic when we start. What's going on is, is that when you begin to do this, your, your hermeneutic is what I call the yearbook hermeneutic. And that is you are uh, looking at what did you do when you got your yearbook? You looked for yourself first. And, uh, and so what we are doing is, is we're taking the words of the prophets and we're looking for ourselves in them as opposed to what the prophets are doing. As St. Paul says, we stand on the foundation built by prophets and apostles, Christ being the chief cornerstone. The prophets, being a part of that foundation, point to Christ. And so whenever we are uh, looking at the Old Testament prophets, we need to see throughout the verses, they begin to take the shape of a cross. That's good. I like that. Yeah. As a a matter of fact, since I'm on a roll... Um, I really think uh, the prophetess Sarah Condon, uh, the Reverend Sarah Condon, nailed it in her uh, Mockingbird article this week. Um, the Reverend Prophetess. Yeah. We're, we're deeming her a prophetess. Right That's right. But the imagination of our hearts. And in that article, she says, I get... The, immigra- the immigration of our hearts. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I'm learning still how to read. But uh, I get anxious when people portray Jesus as the ultimate refugee. It's the same part of me that gets anxious when it is suggested that we all start turning tables over. 
It's true that Jesus came into the world and the world esteemed him not. It is also true that tables need to be turned over. But I'm not exactly sure Jesus was a refugee in the sense that we keep insisting on. And when we talk like this, we're not talking about him so much as ourselves. And I'm 100% sure that I would have been standing in the temple with a bag full of coins like, who is this crazy Jesus guy and why is he messing with my display? In either case, we are not Jesus, and he did not come to be our universal show and tell. He came to be the refuge for sinners. And uh, nothing truer is uh, uh, been said in this regard, and uh, we begin to see this in the prophet Isaiah. Yeah, and you know, here I think Isaiah is echoing concerns that have gone, that have happened earlier in the book. And one of the major concerns in Isaiah, in the first half of the book, is this is this message that God's not interested in performative rituals that are done, even if they're done punctiliously, you know, for their own sake or for the sake of human religious sensibilities or conscientiousness. But God, you know, is interested in the human heart. Mm. And here it's the concerns in Isaiah are related to specifically to the to Sabbath observance and fasting and and how you could fast, you know, and you could tell people, this is one of the things Jesus says in the sermon, or I don't tell people you're fasting. And I, I don't know about you, but I've heard a lot about people's fasting before. Mm. Usually people tell you immediately when they start fasting, mm-hmm. I'm fasting and here's why. Yeah. But in, in a book called The Spirit of the Liturgy, which is, I think, the best short book on liturgy I've read by Benedict XVI, but again, he's always Ratzinger to me, was Ratzinger when he wrote this. Uh, he talks about sacrifice, mm. and he's talking about the true nature of worship. And he says how the basic definition of the attributes of worship is marked concretely by an awareness of man's fall and estrangement. Of necessity, it takes place as a struggle for atonement, forgiveness, and reconciliation. The awareness of guilt weighs down on mankind. Worship is the attempt to be found at every stage of history to overcome guilt and bring back the world and one's own life into right order. And yet an immense feeling of futility pervades everything. This is the tragic face of human history. How can man again connect the world with God? How is he supposed to make valid atonement? The only real gift man should give to God is himself. Mm. As his religious awareness becomes more highly developed, so his awareness that any gift but himself is too little. In fact, absurd becomes more intense. Historically, the sense of inadequacy has been the source of grotesque and horrific forms of cult. The most extreme example is human sacrifice. Thus, as religion becomes more highly developed, this terrible attempt at atonement is more and more discarded. Superficially, it seems to give the deity what is best, and yet more deeply, it has to be seen as the most horrific evasion of the gift of self, the most horrible and therefore the most to be rejected. Thus, as religion becomes more highly developed, this terrible attempt at atonement is more and more discarded. But it also becomes clear that in all worship, it is not the real gift, but a mere replacement that is given. The sacrificial system of all the world's religions, including sacrificial animals or the fruits of harvest, represent man making expiation for him. This is not representation, but replacement. And worship with replacements turns out to be a replacement for worship. Somehow the real thing is missing. Mm. 
That is absolutely right. I think whatever whatever the whatever it is, you know, and St. Paul talks about this in Romans 12. You know, uh, we are not atoning sacrifices. We actually become living sacrifices. And, um, and a living sacrifice looks out for, um, uh, is not doing anything for God because it recognizes that God has done absolutely everything. It's, it's, uh, it's actually truly living for uh, your neighbor, uh, sacrificially, because God has done all the sacrifice for you. Yeah, it's, I think actually you can't really love your neighbor until you know that God is your righteousness oh. and your justification. Because otherwise, we generally love our neighbor better when we're cognizant of who's watching us. That's, a, you know, it's, that's it's so, so true. Like when, when we're freed from that, you know, the, there's liberative power to that. I was, uh, I was actually at a diner uh, last week, and um, it was right after the big protests, and so, uh, some, some protesters came in, and I was over listening to them talk, and uh, one of the gals, it was very telling, she was like, God, that felt so good. That felt so good. And uh, their whole conversation revolved around how good it made them feel. You know, it had nothing to do with the injustice in the world or whatever they were protesting. It was all like it ultimately turned back on them. Yeah, and I think that's ultimately the message here of Isaiah, that the, a genuine Sabbath really promotes human flourishing. And that ultimately what we need is not a, re- a replacement, but representation. Mm. And that representation in and as Jesus Christ is, is, is the foundation of our ancient ruins being rebuilt That's and right. the rising up of many generations and the repairing of the breach and the restore of the streets in which we may dwell where the streets have no name. <laughs> On to Corinth, my friend. Straight out of Corinth. Straight out of Corinth. Everybody, if you have not picked up Jacob Smith's article from the Mockingbird magazine two issues ago, the church issue, I don't know what you are living for, what what meaning you're getting out of life. If you're preaching in hitting on these Corinthian texts, I don't know what you're doing if you mm. haven't read that article. Mm. Well, here we have St. Paul, and uh, just in case you thought you needed big words or... Uh, um or lofty ideas, we have uh, We have St. Paul just dropping some truth right here. And he says, I did not come proclaiming the mystery of God to you in lofty words or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is the thing, and this is what a sermon is all about. It's keeping the main thing the main thing. Um, you can go anywhere and learn about practical business skills. You can go anywhere to learn about how to be a better lover. You can go anywhere um, and learn about all. And first th- off, if you're le- trying to learn that, I mean, you could just you know, you know I, I have lots of insights. That's my wife. Oh, she would say I'm very uh, romantic. <laughs> you know, there was this whole thing going around a couple of years ago about like, uh, you know, the the twelve part sermon series on how to be a better lover and. Um, it was going on in some church in Dallas, and literally the minister was preaching from a heart-shaped bed, one of the sermons. With his wife, yeah. And I thought to myself, I was like, I would never in a million years take my friends to that church. 
Yeah. That's why you don't have a mega church, Jake, because you're not thinking like that. It's so true. We're just, I'm just not that creative. Could you imagine me in my vestments crawling on top of a, like a giant bed? I think it'd be beautiful. Yeah. It'd look glorious. Yeah, I was at your installation. You look glorious. I was like, that thing was so wonderful. I was like, I was sending pictures to Lindy. I was like, Lindy, this is like, I've seen like weddings where people weren't this early. She's like, well, and Jake makes a beautiful bride. And you did. I mean, you were there. And it, was, you looked, it was great. It was a glorious occasion. I met lots of folks from your church who I didn't even know were listeners to this podcast. And for that, I thank you. Yeah. And it was a glory. Thank you for hosting us. And yeah, for the bishop taking time, at, you know, and everybody taking time out of their schedule to be with you and celebrate your day, which is a lovely, lovely thing. Thanks, man. Back to coming. <laughs> yeah. I've lost my train of thought. That was so beautiful. So uh, what do you want to say about it, Scott? Go for it. Well, I mean, what's interesting is that, you know, it's funny that we're in this world of alternative facts, right? Mm. But I I think maybe the true alternative fact is the crucifixion of Jesus. Not in the way we mean it today, where we have people with competing realities. We're all living in our little echo chambers. But in the sense of elsewhere in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, you know, because uh, we no longer view anyone from a human point of view, because of the death of Christ and him all have died. And so I think what Paul's saying here is this alternative fact of the Christ event, the crucified Christ, changes the way you view your reality. And it's not really an alternative fact, it's the real truth, Mm. which makes all other realities into the alternative facts in the wrong sense of the word. You know, that that we realize so much of the world, and, and by this I don't mean the the created order which God fashioned and put in place, but what we make of it as we make it into human culture, it reveals the world for what it is, which is our own sort of narratives to, to try to desperately get meaning out of a sin-soaked world, which our attempts to make meaning often make things worse. That's right. And uh, the truth is, is that these facts that come to us from above, they must be revealed. St. Paul is saying, you know, that this just doesn't come to us naturally. He says, none of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. You know, the very idea that God would condescend himself and take on flesh and to live and die as uh, live and die among us, this would have been repugnant to both Jews and Greeks in that day. Yeah, absolutely. Long pause. Yeah. Yeah, it's very interesting, too, at the end of the reading, which I might, you know, if I was preaching just this text, I mean, this is a nice crescendo. The spiritual person judges all things, but is themselves to be judged by no one. And you know, what's interesting about that is I, I think that you could you could really read that as sort of, well, they're, you know, they're uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger now in The Apprentice. You're fired. <laughs> uh, you know, something like that. But no, I think what it's saying is the spiritual person who has received this revelation of the ultimate fact, the crucified Christ, which looks foolish, but is really the wisdom of God. Now it's like they can see the matrix, mm. like Neo in the matrix, where you see the code. And the code is a cruciform code. Yeah. <laughs> that the code of reality is death and resurrection. But then... You're able to see the mystery and beauty uh, of a creation. It's like uh, my uh, George Hunzinger, professor at Princeton Seminary, told this story of he and his younger friend. When they were kids, they would drive across the bridge from Trenton to Bucks County in Trenton, New Jersey. And if you've, if you've driven over that bridge, there's a sign, uh, Trenton makes the world takes, which I guess was when Trenton had a manufacturing academy, but it doesn't anymore. 
But his friend didn't, his parents didn't realize that the friend, that his younger friend, you know, his, his friend's parents didn't realize that his younger friend needed glasses. And he, when he got glasses, and again, they're toddler, you know, great early grade school kids. When he got his glasses, he never realized that the sign set on the bridge, that there was a sign and mm. words on the bridge. And the, for the first time he saw it. And so I think it, it, what Paul is saying something is, is something like the gift of this revelation in the spirit, which is a graced form of knowing. Uh, it, it makes things plain. So the person is judge, judges all things, discern, it's, discerns all things, sees the reality that there's a cross at the heart of God and is judged by no one because God, who is the friend of sinners and justifies the ungodly, is their raison d'entre or reason for being. That's amazing. Now on to Matthew chapter 5, and you know, this is such good news that um, it really is uh, the light of the world. Amen to that, my friend. We're well into the Sermon on the Mount. And it's interesting because, you know, Matthew uh, organizes his gospel into five pieces of long discourse. And for Matthew, I think that's because Jesus is the new Moses, the, 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 the superior Moses, the fulfilling of the mosaic role and tradition. And so there, he, there's, he does stuff in between these long utterances, just like there's Moses wrote the Torah, the five books, the first five books of the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. Here we have Jesus giving the Torah, the new Torah, rising up on a mount to do it. Absolutely. And he comes right at it. And, you know, and he's just finished delivering the Beatitudes, the blessings that he can give as the Messiah. And uh, it's the flip-flop sense of the world, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the, the, uh, the poor in spirit, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Then he jumps right in, and he's speaking to these people, and he reminds them that you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. This idea, you are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. Uh, the, the idea here is that I'm in your midst. This is all happening right here before your very eyes. And he goes on and he goes on to give one of probably the most misunderstood uh, verses in the Bible. And it says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Uh, you know, most people think that when they say that, they're like, aha, you grace guys, we've got you. You know, you can't discount the law. And nobody is discounting the law here at all. And none of our preaching is discounting the law. What we're pointing to is how Jesus' own words, how he has come to fulfill them. So we live, as we were talking about earlier in this First Corinthians text, in this new reality that uh, we're not judged because judgment has already been taken place. Yeah, it's. I think N.T. Wright somewhere says that, you know, when he's talking about Jesus is the tell us, not the end of the law. It's not that the law is a bad thing, he would say. It's a, it would be strange if, like the rockets that get the space shuttle out into orbit, they're great because they get the shuttle out into orbit, but it would be strange after they jettison the rockets if you saw the astronauts put on their gear and get out and try to get them back and reattach them. Yeah. It's what propels us to this point. So and this is the ecumenical hour here on Same Old Song. So we're going back. This written post-Razzi when he's Benedict. This is in his wonderful, wonderful 
Jesus of Nazareth book, uh, first volume. I, I commend all of our readers, uh, or all of our listeners, to check this book. It's great stuff on, on Jesus. And he's talking about the Torah of the Messiah. He said, the Messiah was expected to bring a renewed Torah, his Torah. Paul may be alluding to this in, his, in the letter to the Galatians when he speaks of the law of Christ. His great passionate defense of freedom from the law culminates in the following statement, chapter 5, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand mm. fast, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. But when he goes on to repeat at 5.13 the claim that you were called to freedom, he adds, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love be servants of one another. And now he explains what freedom is, namely freedom in the service of good, freedom that allows itself to be led by the Spirit of God. It is precisely by letting oneself be led by God's Spirit, moreover, that one becomes free from the law. Immediately after this, Paul details what the freedom of the Spirit actually consists in and what is incompatible with it. The law of Christ is freedom. That is the paradox of Paul's message in the letter, in the letter to the Galatians. This freedom has content then, it has direction, and it therefore contradicts what only apparently liberates man, mm. but in truth makes him a slave. The Torah of the Messiah is totally new and different, but it is precisely by being such that it fulfills the Torah of Moses. And then he says the greater part of the Sermon is devoted to the same topic. That's that's really beautiful. And I think that it's it's really it's really easy to fall into the freedom that we have and to want to prescribe it as opposed to describe it. And uh, I think when you begin to prescribe the law uh, to your uh, parishioners and begin to uh, prescribe what freedom in Christ is, then what you do is you become the one who causes people to uh, break the least of these commandments. And, uh, and, rem- and, uh, and the truth is, is that, um, as Jesus says here, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. And the point there isn't, hey, guys, let me give you a prescription of what this looks like. It's to be way better than you could ever imagine and way better than those guys over there. No, the point is to kind of um, empty us of ourselves. Uh, the, the, that word is designed to say enough already and let me find my rest in thee. As Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, He says, yet whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as loss because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ Jesus, the righteousness from God based on faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death, if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Ultimately, what we don't need is a greater righteousness than the Pharisees or the scribes. We need a righteousness outside of ourselves that saves us and reconciles us to God. And uh, is indeed that foundation that Isaiah preached about, and indeed the foolishness that Paul points to, and the righteousness that only Christ can give, the new, um, the new Moses, the greater Moses. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Amen. And we will catch you all next week. Thanks for listening to 
Same old song, the lectionary podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. To find out more about Mockingbird, head on over to our website, mbird.com. And if you've got thoughts or feedback, insights you'd like to share, this is a new endeavor, so we'd love to hear them. You send me an email at scottjones at mbird.com. Thanks again for listening and have a great week.